0: If I do that, can you still see the bowing mat? Okay, all right. Good morning, everybody. So, uh, there's so much in my heart right now, it's hard to know where to begin the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and Mike Ramos here in Austin by police, the pandemic and our whole wretched world situation, the incompetence and outright cruelty of our leaders, the collapse of our lives as we knew them, the new normal and our collective burden of shame and guilt and responsibility. But words fail me and so I must call on someone who speaks so eloquently and clearly from the past that it is as though he could foresee our own predicament. Viktor Frankl survived four concentration camps planning in the midst of inconceivable suffering and human cruelty the lecture he would give about this experience at some time in the future to the Adult Education College in Vienna. Ultimately he somehow survived and gave this lecture in that college in 1946, 11 months after being liberated. It's been recently rediscovered and translated and published in the slender volume, Yes to Life, In Spite of Everything, Just like this. <clears throat> because it speaks directly to our own present circumstances and state of mind, I am simply going to read the entire lecture. It's long but I want it read into the record of Appomattox and never forgotten. It's a masterpiece of the human spirit. I hope you'll be heartened, inspired, and challenged by it. He says, There is a small town in Bavaria called Landsberg, about 50 kilometers west of Munich. South of it, a road leads to the town of Marked Kaufering, five kilometers away. At the beginning of last year, as day was dawning, 280 men marched along this street. The column consisted of rows of five and was escorted by by SS soldiers. This was a group of prisoners from the concentration camp in Kaufering. They walked to a nearby forest, where they were to build a concealed munitions factory of enormous proportions. These were ragged, down-and-out figures walking along this street. Walking is the wrong description. They hobbled. They dragged themselves along. In many cases, hanging on to each other and supporting one another. Their legs, swollen and bulging from hunger edema, could barely support their bodies weighing, on average, only 40 kilograms. Their feet ached, for they were raw, covered in festering pressure sores and ulcerated chilblains. And what was going on in the brains of these men? They thought about the soup that was doled out for their only meal of the day in the evening at the camp, after returning from the work site, and wondered whether that evening, as well as the watery broth they would be lucky enough to grab a potato floating in it. And they thought about which group they would be assigned to in the next quarter of an hour when work started, whether they would end up in one of the groups under a dreaded foreman or one of the relatively pleasant ones. And so the thoughts of these people revolved around the daily troubles of a concentration camp inmate. Then one of the men felt that these thoughts were somehow too pointless, and he tried to rise above them and think other thoughts, more decent human concerns, but he was not quite able to do it. Then he used a trick. He tried to distance himself from this whole agonizing life to get beyond it by looking at it, as they say, from a higher vantage point or from the viewpoint of the future in the sense of a future theoretical observation. And what did he do? He imagined that he was standing before a lectern at a Viennese adult education college and giving a lecture, and it would be about what he was currently experiencing. In his mind, he gave a lecture entitled psychology of the concentration camp. If you had looked more closely at that man in that group, you would have noticed that he had sewn into his coat and trousers, small scraps of linen on which a number was visible. 119-104, and if you had looked through the Dachau camp records, you would have found that beside this number was written the name of the camp inmate, Frankel Victor. Now, for the first time, I would like to really give that lecture in this real hall of this Vienna Adult Education College, the lecture that this man had given in his mind at that time. Let me tell you about it that lecture began with the words in the psychology of the concentration camp we can discern several phases in terms of the psychological reactions of the camp prisoners to life in the camp the first phase is at the time of the prisoners admission to the camp this is the phase that could be identified and characterized as admission shock imagine the prisoner is delivered off to, let's say, Auschwitz. If he belonged, as was the case with my transport, to the majority of around 95%, then his path would lead from the train station directly to one of the gas chambers. But if he belonged, as by chance I did, to the minority of 5%, then his path led first to the disinfection chamber, so into a real shower. Before he can enter the actual shower room, everything that he has with him is taken away. He is only allowed to keep his braces or belt, at best his spectacles or a truss. But no hair is allowed to remain on his body. He is completely shaven. When he is finally standing under the shower, nothing has remained of his whole former life except his literally naked existence and now he reaches the actual point at which he enters the first phase of the experience of the concentration camp. He puts a line through his entire former existence. No one will be surprised to hear that his next thought concerns the question of how best to commit suicide. In fact everyone in this situation flirts, if only for a moment, with the idea of running into the wire committing suicide using the usual method in the camp, contact with the high-voltage barbed wire fence. However, he drops his intention at once, simply because it has become more or less pointless. Because a suicide attempt is redundant in this situation, inasmuch as the average probability of not, sooner or later, going to the gas chamber is in any case minimal. Who needs to run into the wire, when he is going into the gas sooner or later. He no longer needs to wish for the wire once he has the gas to be afraid of, but he no longer needs to fear the gas once he has wished for the wire. When I talk of these things, I always tell of the following experience. On the first morning that we spent in Auschwitz, a colleague of mine who had arrived a few weeks before us smuggled himself into our quarters As newcomers, we were all together in a separate hut. He wanted to comfort us and warn us. Above all, he made us understand that we should pay great attention to our appearance. We should strive at all costs to give the impression of being fit for work. Even a limp, perhaps for a reason that is trivial in itself, for example, because of ill-fitting shoes, would be enough. An SS man who saw somebody limping would be capable of simply waving them aside and sending them straight to the gas chamber. Only people who were fit for work would be considered fit to live. All the rest would be judged to be unworthy of life, unworthy of survival. This is why my colleague urged us to shave every day so that, after scraping the skin on our faces with some kind of improvised shaving implement, such as a piece of broken glass, we would look rosier, fresher, healthier. And when he finally inspected our group to see if we all made the right impression of good health and fitness for work, he said reassuringly, As you stand before me now, you don't need to be afraid of being sent to the gas chamber for the time being. Maybe, except one, except you, Frankel. But you're not angry with me, are you? But you are the only one who, going on appearance, might currently be considered for selection. Selection was the commonly used term in the camp for choosing those who would be sent to the gas chamber with the next batch. Well, I was not angry with him in the least, because what I felt at that moment was the satisfaction that at least this way I would almost certainly be spared a suicide attempt. This indifference to one's own fate then continues further, increasingly, even within a few days of his imprisonment in the camp, the inmate becomes more and more emotionally numbed. Things that are going on around him affect him less and less. Whereas in the first few days, the sheer abundance of experiences filled with ugliness, hateful in every sense, provoke feelings of horror, outrage, and disgust, these feelings eventually subside, and inner life as a whole is reduced to a minimum. Something that, for an outsider, would be entirely unimaginable. All thought and striving are then restricted to surviving only for today. All spiritual life is likewise reduced to serve this sole interest. In relation to everything else, the soul surrounds itself with a protective shell, from which the otherwise harrowing and disturbing impressions will bounce off. This is how the soul protects itself, how it tries to safeguard itself from the overwhelming power threatening to swamp it, and tries to preserve its equilibrium, to rescue itself into indifference. In this way, the prisoner progresses into the second phase of the psychological reaction to camp life the phase that could be characterized as the phase of apathy. But if your exclusive interest is now self-preservation, preserving the lives of yourself and a few friends, then the inner life of the individual sinks almost to the level of an animal. And if we look more closely, we might add to the level of a herd animal. To verify this, one would have had to observe the behavior of the camp inmates when they formed a marching column, whereby they were mainly concerned with positioning themselves in the middle of the procession and in the middle of a row of five, so that they were not exposed to the kicks of the guards. Each man's efforts were primarily directed at not attracting attention, not standing out in any way, but just disappearing into the mass. No wonder then, if this submerging into the mass led to a going under, a decline of the personal sphere. In the camp, the human being threatened to become a creature of the masses. On average, he became as primitive as a mass creature. His whole driving force became primitive. It became primitive insofar as it was an attitude of compulsion. So it is easy to understand that the psychoanalysts among my colleagues who were with me in the concentration camp spoke in their own terms of a regression. Regression means the retreat of the psyche to more primitive stages of animal impulse. In fact, it was possible by observing the typical dreams of the prisoners to determine what primitive wishes they were inwardly giving themselves. So what did the men mainly dream of in the camp? Always the same. Bread, cigarettes, decent ground coffee, and last but not least, a nice warm bath. And I, personally, always dreamt of a very particular gâteau, cake. And yet the opinion of my one-sided, psychoanalytically oriented colleagues was fundamentally wrong. It is not true that the experience of the concentration camp drove people to regression out of a fateful necessity and forced them internally to take a step backward. I know of many cases and even though they are individual ones they still have fundamental evidential value in which the people concerned far from inwardly regressing instead made inner progress growing beyond themselves and achieving true human greatness even in the concentration camp and precisely through their experience of the concentration camp. Now other professionals non-psychoanalysts <clears throat> have a different interpretation of what happened to people's mental and spiritual life in the concentration camp. <clears throat> the well-known characterological, characterologist, Professor Emil Utitz, who himself spent several years in a concentration camp, thought he could observe that the character of camp inmates generally had developed according to the psychological type that Kretschmer calls the schizoid, this type is characterized by the fact that the afflicted person swings between the affective states of apathy on one hand and irritability on the other, while the most important other type, characterized by the cycloid temperament, is rejoicing to eye heaven one minute and in the depths of despair the next. In other words, he is caught in a permanent cycle of joyful excitement and depressive sadness. This is not the place to go into a specialist discussion of the psychopathological outlook. I would like to limit myself to what is fundamentally important, and that is the conclusion I was able to draw from the identical observation material, contrary to Utitz, namely, that the person in the concentration camp is by no means under any external compulsion to get involved in directing his inner development toward becoming the typical concentration camp prisoner, with those apparent schizoid tendencies, but that instead he retains a freedom, the human freedom to adapt to his fate, his environment, in one way or another, and indeed there was one way or another. And there were people in the camp who, for example, were able to overcome their apathy and suppress their irritability, and in the end, It was a question of appealing to their ability to do things differently, and not just the supposed compulsion to do things this way. That inner ability, that real human freedom, they could not take that away from the prisoner, even if in there they could take everything else away from him, and in fact did so. This freedom stayed with him, even when the spectacles that they let him keep were smashed to pieces by a punch to the face. And even when one day he was forced to exchange his belt for a piece of bread, so that finally nothing remained of his last few belongings, but that freedom was left to him, and it remained with him until his last breath. Even if a man lapsed into the psychological conformity of the concentration camp, he nevertheless had the freedom to escape the power and influence of that environment, and not to be governed by those rules, but to resist them, to withdraw from them instead of obeying them blindly. In other words, that man did once possess such freedom, but he had given it away. He had, as it were, renounced its use, voluntarily renounced it. But in so doing, he had given himself up, abandoned his self, his very essence. Spiritually, he had let himself fall. But now we need to ask, When did this deterioration back to type begin? When did this person allow himself to fall spiritually? And our answer must be, once he had lost his inner hold, as soon as he no longer had an inner hold. Such a hold could exist in two forms. Either it was a hold on the future or a hold on eternity. The latter was the case with all truly religious people. They did not even need a hold on the future. Their future life out there in the free world after their coming liberation, these people could remain upright irrespective of whether they anticipated a future destiny or would even experience such a future or survive the concentration camp. The others, however, were forced to find a hold on their future life, on the content of their life in the future. But it was hard for them to think about the future Their thinking about it could find no reference point, no end point. An end, the end, could not be foreseen. How enviable it seemed to us to be a serious criminal who knew exactly that he had to serve his term of 10 years, who could calculate how many days had to pass until the date of his release. Lucky man, because all of us on the camp did not have and did not know of a release date and none of us knew when the end would come. This was, according to the unanimous opinion of my comrades, perhaps one of the most spiritually depressing facts of life in the camp. And the recurrent rumors of an imminent end to the war only increased the torment of waiting, for again and again the deadlines had to be postponed. But who could have gone on believing such news? During a full three years, I heard repeatedly In six weeks, the war will be over. We will be home again in six weeks at most. The disappointment became ever more bitter and more profound, the expectation more fearful. And what does the Bible say? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Indeed, it gets sick, so sick that it eventually stops beating. You will understand this when I tell you about the following case. At the beginning of March last year, my former block elder, a Budapest tango composer and librettist for light operas, told me that he had had a strange dream. Around the middle of February I dreamt, he said, that a voice spoke to me and told me I should make a wish and I should ask the voice something I wanted to know. It could answer the question, it could predict my future. And then I asked the voice, when will the war be over for me? Do you understand? For me. So when will we be liberated by the advancing American troops? And what answer did the voice give you? Then he leaned toward me and whispered secretively in my ear. On the 30th of March. In mid-March, I was admitted to the infirmary hut with typhus. On April 1st, I was released from there and returned to my earthen hut. Where is the block elder, I asked, and what did I discover? Toward the end of March, when the date predicted by the voice in his dream had moved ever closer, without the military situation seeming to keep up with it, our block elder had become increasingly depressed. On the 29th of March, he started running a high temperature. On the 30th of March, the day the war was to end for him, he lost consciousness. On the 31st of March, he was dead. He had died of typhus. So you can see that spiritual and mental decline due to losing one's inner hold, especially due to the loss of a hold on the future, also leads to physical decline. Now let us ask ourselves whether there was any therapy for this mental, spiritual, and physical decline, whether one could have done anything about it, and what? I can only give you this answer there was a therapy but it is clear from the outset it had to be confined to the psychological so that it could only be a psychotherapy and within such psychotherapy of course it was primarily a matter of providing a spiritual hold of giving life content thinking of the words of nietzsche who once said whoever has a why to live can bear almost any how a why that is part of the content of life and the how those were the conditions of life that made camp life so difficult that it only became bearable with regard to a why a wherefore so if there was basically nothing other than psychotherapy to enable people to endure the camp then this psychotherapy was already defined in a particular sense since it needed to endeavor to convince the person who was being asked to muster the will to survive that this survival had meaning. In addition, the psychotherapeutic task, which in the camp was truly the task of caring for the inmates' souls, was made more difficult because we were dealing with people who in general, on average, could not count on surviving. What could you have said to them? and one should have said something to them in particular. And hence this situation becomes the experimentum crucis for that psychotherapeutic care. That means the critical experiment. I have already said in the previous part that not only life itself but also the suffering involved has a meaning and in fact a meaning that is so unconditional that it can be fulfilled even when the suffering does not lead to outward success where it looks as though the suffering was in vain. And it was mainly such suffering that we had to deal with in the concentration camps. But what ought I have said to these people who were lying next to me in the barracks and knew pretty accurately that they would die and how soon they would die? They knew as well as I did that no life, no person, and no task, remember the double case that I told you about in the first part, that was in the first lecture would be waiting for them, or that it would be waiting in vain. So, as well as the meaning of living, of survival, it was also important to point out the meaning of suffering, and of suffering in vain, indeed much more than this, even to reveal the meaning that may be latent in death. A death, of course, that could have been more meaningful only in the sense of Rilke's maxim, of which we spoke last time, and which said that each person should die his or her own death. It was essential that we should die a death of our own and not the death that the SS had forced on us. We bear responsibility for this task just as we bear responsibility for the task of life. Responsibility? To whom? To which higher authority? And who would be allowed to answer this question for anyone else? Does not everyone have to decide this ultimate question for himself? What does it matter if maybe one man in the barracks felt responsible to his conscience and another to his God and a third to a person who was now far away? Each one of them knew that somehow, somewhere, someone was there unseen, watching over him, who demanded of him that he be, would be worthy of his sufferings as Dostoevsky once said and expect of him that he should die his own death. Each of us felt this expectation at that time when death was near, and we felt it all the more or less that we felt that ourselves, that we ourselves, could still expect anything from life, that someone or something was still waiting for us at all, and that we might expect to survive it all. Many of you who have not lived through the concentration camp will be astonished and will ask me how a human being can endure all the things I have been talking about. I assure you, the person who has experienced and survived all of that is even more amazed than you are. But do not forget this. The human psyche seems to behave in some ways like a vaulted arch. An arch that has become dilapidated can be supported by placing an extra load on it. The human soul also seems to be strengthened by experiencing a burden, at least to a particular degree, and within certain limits. This is how, and this is the only way, we can understand it. Many a weakling was able to leave the concentration camp in a better, stronger state of mind, as it were, than when he had entered it. At the same time, however, we now understand that the liberation, the release from the camp. The sudden release of the prisoner from the intense pressure he has been under all that time in turn endangers his psyche. I use caisson disease or decompression sickness for comparison in this context. It affects divers who work underwater under high atmospheric pressure and should never suddenly be returned to normal air pressure, but only gradually because otherwise they suffer the most serious physical consequences. However, this also anticipates our discussion of the third and final phase within the psychology of the concentration camp, the psychology of the liberated inmate. The most important thing I want to say regarding him concerns something that will no doubt greatly astonish you. It is the fact that it takes many days before the liberated person is able to enjoy his liberation He must actually and literally relearn how to be happy and sometimes he has to hurry to learn this because often he will need to unlearn it again and must learn to suffer again i would like to say a little bit about that now imagine that the man liberated from the concentration camp returns comes home then he may be met with some kind of a shrug of the shoulders And above all, he will always hear two phrases from other people. We did not know anything about it. And we also suffered. Let us start with a second statement and ask ourselves first whether human suffering can be measured or assessed in such a way that the suffering of one person can be compared to the suffering of another. And I would like to say about this that the suffering of human beings is incommensurable. Real suffering fills a person completely, fills their whole being. I once talked to a friend about my experiences in the concentration camp. He himself had not been in a camp, he had merely fought at Stalingrad. And the man felt, as he said, somehow ashamed when compared with me. He did not need to be. There is indeed an essential difference between what a man experiences in battle and what he experiences in a concentration camp. In battle he faces nothingness. He stares death in the face. But in the camp we ourselves were nothing. We were already dead during our lifetime. We were worth nothing. We did not only see nothingness, that is what we were. Our life counted for nothing. Our death counted for nothing. There was no halo not even a notional one, around our death. It was the departure of a small nothing into the vast nothingness. And this death was also barely noticed. We had already lived it long in advance. And what would have happened if I had died in the camp? On the parade ground the next morning, someone in one of the rows of five, outwardly unmoved, standing there as usual, with his face buried in his open coat collar against the frost, and his shoulders hunched, would have mumbled to the man next to him, Frankel died yesterday, and at most this man would have murmured, Hmm. And in spite of everything, no human suffering can be compared to anyone else's, because it is part of the nature of suffering that it is the suffering of a particular person, that it is, It is his or her own suffering, that its magnitude is dependent solely on the sufferer, that is, on the person. A person's solitary suffering is just as unique and individual as is every person. Therefore, it would be pointless to speak of differences in the magnitude of suffering. But a difference that truly matters is that between meaningful and meaningless suffering but and i think you will have gathered this sufficiently from previous lectures this difference depends entirely on the individual human being the individual and only that individual determines whether their suffering is meaningful or not and what about the suffering of those people who as we have heard so strongly declare that they also suffered and that they had known nothing you see it is this precisely this claim to having known nothing that, in my opinion, is so well-suited to making meaningless the fact of having suffered. And why? Become, because it comes from an ethical misunderstanding of the situation, a misunderstanding that we will now address. Not because I want to bring the politics of the day into the debate, be, but because I think it is necessary to augment the metaphysics of everyday life that we have concerned ourselves with so far by adding an ethics of everyday life. We spoke earlier about the why of not knowing and said it was a misunderstanding. But if we ask about the cause of this misunderstanding, then we may discover that this not knowing is in fact a not wanting to know. What lies behind it is wanting to escape responsibility. However, the average person today is in fact being driven to flee responsibility. What is driving him to this flight is the fear of having to accept collective guilt. He will be declared guilty on all counts, complicit in things he has not done himself. Indeed, things of which in many cases he actually knew nothing. Should the decent person really be held accountable for the offenses of others even if the offenders belonged to the same nation? Was he, this decent man, not himself the victim of an offense, the object of a terror that was carried out by a ruling leading class of his own people without him being able to stand up against the terror? Did he not suffer under it himself? Would not the establishment of a collective guilt be a relapse into exactly that worldview that we want to combat that worldview that declares an individual guilty because others from the same group to which he happens to belong have actually or allegedly committed some kind of offense? And how ridiculous this outlook seems to us today. Finally, holding someone to account because of their nationality, native language, or place of birth must seem as ridiculous to us today as making them responsible for their own height If a criminal who is 1.64 meters tall is arrested, should I also be hanged because I happen to be the same height? But here we have to make an important distinction. We have to differentiate between collective guilt and collective liability. If I illustrate this with an allegorical example, you will understand me immediately. If I suddenly get appendicitis, is it my fault? Certainly not. And yet, if I have to have an operation, what then? I will nevertheless owe the fee for the operation to the doctor who operated on me. That is, I am liable for the settlement of the doctor's bill. So, liability without guilt definitely exists. And it is a similar situation now with a collective of people who are collectively freed from terror. They could not liberate themselves other collectives, other freedom-loving nations had to step in, (coughs) join the battle, and sacrifice their best people, their youth, to liberate a nation that was powerless against its own leadership, from those leaders. This powerlessness had nothing to do with guilt. But would it be unfair, unjust, to have to pay for this liberation with some kind of sacrifice, and to feel jointly liable, even if you were not complicit and knew you were not guilty. If you want to understand the last chapter of this psychology, you would have had to accompany me at sunset on that spring evening last year after the liberation of the Turkheim concentration camp, when I went alone into the woodland near the camp. There, on the highly illegal order of our camp commander, The comrades who had died in the camp were buried. The commander was the SS man, who I mentioned in the first part, who had paid for medicines for his camp prisoners out of his own pocket. During the burial, contrary to the orders this man had received, he did not neglect to ensure that after removing slivers of bark from the slender trunks of the young fir trees that stood behind the mass graves, The names of the dead were inconspicuously scrawled there in indelible pencil. If you had been with me then, you would have sworn with me to ensure that the continuing life of us survivors would absolve the guilt of all of us. Yes, the guilt of all of us, because we survivors knew very well that the best among us in the camp did not come out. It was the best who did not return. So we could not perceive our survival as anything other than undeserved mercy. To earn it later, to earn it retrospectively, and be halfway worthy of it, that we felt we owed our dead comrades. It only seemed possible to settle this guilt by shaking up and keeping alert the consciences of others as well as our own. True enough, What became of the liberated man after such an experience, when he returned home, only too often made him forget that oath. However, there are moments in this life, and those are the significant ones, in which he fulfills what he once swore to himself, to bless the smallest piece of bread, the fact that he can sleep in a bed, that he does not have to stand for roll call or live in constant danger of death everything becomes relative for him and so does every misfortune as we said he who was literally nothing feels literally born again but not as the person he was but as the essence of himself in the first part i pointed out how everything extraneous to his person was melted down not much of his ambition will have been left either What may have lasted can at most be a yearning to achieve a far higher form of yearning, the urge for self-realization, only in its most essential form. As you no doubt realize, we have at the same time reached the end of this topic and the limits of our discussion. No talking, no lectures, can help us get any further. There is only one thing left for us to do, to act. Namely, to act in our everyday lives. We were just talking about everyday life. Yes, even the phrase metaphysics of everyday life came up. I hope that you now understand this expression correctly. It was not enough to make transparent the everyday, which is only apparently so gray, banal, and commonplace, so that we can look through it into the eternal But in the final analysis, it was necessary to point out that the eternal refers back to the temporal, to the temporal, the everyday, and the point of an ongoing encounter between the finite and the infinite. What we create, experience, and suffer in this time, we create, experience, and suffer for all eternity. As far as we bear responsibility for an event, as far as it is history, our responsibility, it is incredibly burdened by the fact that something that has happened cannot be taken out of the world. However, at the same time, an appeal is made to our responsibility precisely to bring what has not yet happened into the world. And each of us must do this as part of our daily work, as part of our daily lives. So everyday life becomes the reality per se and this reality becomes the potential for action. And so the metaphysics of everyday life only at first leads us out of everyday life, but then, consciously and responsibly, it leads us back into everyday life. What leads us forward and helps us along the way, what has guided and is guiding us, is a joy in taking responsibility. But to what extent is the average person happy to take on responsibility? Responsibility is something one is both drawn to and withdraws from. This wisdom in the language indicates that there are opposing forces in human beings that prevent them from taking responsibility. And indeed, there is something unfathomable about responsibility. The longer and more deeply we look into it, the more we become aware of it until finally we are seized by a kind of dizziness. If we delve into the nature of human responsibility, we recoil. There is something terrible about the responsibility of a human being and at the same time something glorious. It is terrible to know that at every moment I bear responsibility for the next, that every decision, from the smallest to the largest, is a decision for all eternity, That in every moment I can actualize the possibility of a moment, of that particular moment, or forfeit it. Every single moment contains thousands of possibilities, and I can only choose one of them to actualize it, but in making the choice I have condemned all the others and sentenced them to never being, and even this is for all eternity. But it is wonderful to know that the future, my own future, and with it the future of the things, the people around me, is somehow, albeit to a very small extent, dependent on my decisions in every moment. Everything I realize through them, or bring into the world as we have said, I save into reality and thus protect from transience. But on an average, people are too sluggish to shoulder their responsibilities. And this is where education for responsibility begins. Certainly the burden is heavy. It is difficult not only to recognize responsibility, but also to commit to it, to say yes to it, and to life. But there have been people who have said yes despite all difficulties. And when the inmates in the Buchenwald concentration camp sang in their song we still want to say yes to life they did not only sing about it but also achieved it many times they and many of us in the other camps as well and they achieved it under unspeakable conditions external and internal conditions that we have already spoken enough about today so shouldn't we all be able to achieve it today in after all incomparably milder circumstances To say yes to life is not only meaningful under all circumstances, because life itself is, but it is also possible under all circumstances. And ultimately, that was the entire purpose of these three parts to show you that people can still, despite hardship and death, first part, despite suffering from physical or mental illness, second part, those were the first two lectures. Or under the fate of the concentration camp, third part, say yes to life in spite of everything. <clears throat> so that's Victor Frankl's lecture. And the first two lectures are equally uh, wonderful. So I encourage you to get hold of this book if you can. Um, <clears throat> Uh, It's been a real um, nourishing and um, heartening read for me, and I assume would be so for anyone who's living in these times. So um, I think what I would like to do, since we have a little bit of time, maybe um, would you like to have some breakout rooms and have a chance to just... uh, breakout rooms and uh, uh, and have a chance to just... uh, But... People seem to want that not your head because you're muted. Okay, and maybe you want to set up some groups of um, I'd say four people. Can you do that, Anne? for you. Um, I want to remind you this book is called Yes to Life by Viktor Frankl. It's, uh, it's just recently been translated. These lectures were given back in 1946 but they were never translated into English until now so it's wonderful to have it um, and um, I encourage you to read it only because the first two lectures are equally good and uh, you'll get a lot out of them. So, and you can also find uh, there's a few like three or four YouTube videos of him speaking. So, um, so it'd be uh, nice to tune in and see, hear his own voice and his own uh, words, you know, so hopefully I didn't do too much uh, damage to his, <laughs> his intentions with this lecture in reading it this way. But I did want to share it with you. I really thought it was um, important for us to hear now. Um, these words, uh, coming out of real deprivation, uh, so that we can bring into being the future that we want to bring into being, right. So that's, that's our task now. You know, as I was saying in the breakout room, um, the um, article in the New York Times that I last read was about the future is uncertain, because we're the ones bringing it into being. So so we don't want to sit around and say, well, I can't do anything because the future is uncertain, you know? <laughs> so that's what I love about Viktor Frankl, about this notion that we always have choices, and we have thousands and thousands of choices in any moment, but we can only pick one. And so pick wisely, right? All right. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll do service now, I think. Um, Unless there's anything, raise your hand if there's anything you you would like to share or anything you need to say. Uh, Lori. Ann, would you unmute Lori? I just unmuted everybody, so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Except Lord, Lori are still muted. Yeah, Lori, oh, a lot of people are still. I think that means you can unmute yourself if the host has unmuted you, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Well, I guess I'm, I... Last night I was watching some what was going on in our country, and the the thought came to me. Uh, my, the question that came to me is, where are leaders? Where are the leaders? Well, they're the ones inciting this. Well, no. What I mean is, who are our leaders that are you know and that are going to bring us out of that? And so, you know, what what is our role? in terms of that. I mean, how do we relate to who, who, what's, there's no Martin Luther King, you know, there's yeah. no. Um, yeah. so, so that's the thing that came up for me is who, because yeah. who you know, we need somebody. We need, We have to fight hard for those. Um, and I don't need a politician. I just mean. Uh-oh. Kim? Yeah, I uh, mistakenly pressed end um, breakout room too quickly but someone in our our room was talking about they could only do little things and that reminded me of that wonderful story about the girl who's throwing the starfish back in the right in the water and and kind of in response to your question what you're saying lori is is in terms of looking at the leader if each of us does little things you know all the starfish can be saved so there's there's great importance in self-leadership and then calling calling that forth in our in our um, official leaders yeah yeah so Kathy did you have something you wanted to add (laughs) okay anybody else you can't you can't hear oh is your audio not working? Hmm. Uh, now I'm un- unmuted. <laughs> now you're unmuted. Yeah. Yeah. That um, the article by David Brooks the other yesterday or the day before, and uh, that's what he was saying too. That we have to we have to be the the people that are the leaders and to form groups uh, of like-mindedness, I think is what he was talking about. Right. But it, it's it's worth reading that article also, cause it ties into this. Good. Yeah. The people are stepping forward now who have something to say that's worthwhile. And so that's worth sharing when you find, you know, something that is really, there's so much dreck Um, that to get a, you know, sort of a recommendation of something as being worth our time and attention is really crucial now, you know. So I'm trying to be mindful of that when I send things out in the reflections, not to, um, not to give people too many things to do, but, uh, but also to give pointers to things that I think are worth paying attention to. So hopefully that's helpful. Yeah. 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 So, Thank you for reading it, Peg. Oh well, it was uh, so moving to me. I couldn't mm-hmm. not share it with you. You know, it was the first thing I thought, even while I was reading it. I have to share this with the sangha. It's too important. I can't even just send you off to read it because some of you won't. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I know from my own students. <laughs> Uh, This way, too, we have it recorded, and you can go back and listen to it again, which I think is really, um, might be beneficial. Times when you're feeling really low and despairing, this is the thing to listen to. You know, times when you feel like everything's going to hell in a handbasket, which it certainly is, um, then this is the thing to listen to, right? So let's support each other. It's really, really important that we stay connected to each other um, that's uh, tremendously important, not just for Appamata, but for each of you. Mm-hmm. So let's keep finding ways to do that, okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as a reminder, Peg, the best way to have practice discussion with you is to email you? Or uh, the t- best way is on the practice discussion calendar. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, okay. So if you go to the main website mm-hmm. where it says calendar, if you click on it, there's kind of a drop-down menu, and it'll say main calendar and then it'll say practice discussion and then it'll say facilities and roles um, but practice discussion is the calendar where you can make appointments with me for practice discussion and we're trying to set things up now so that there'll be opportunities for practice discussion with lori and todd and joel as well so we're just trying to figure out logistically how to do that okay okay thank you. all right very good okay are there any other announcements uh, there probably are other announcements, but um, other than that, it looks like we may be closed through the summer at least. Um, uh, that's the one thing I'm thinking. Um, we are in talks with the councils about how to think about what we do when we reopen, how to think about what that would look like and what we would have to have in place and how that would be logistically. And we would do practice runs with council members before we made final decisions about that. But um, but no, there's no immediate announcement other than the uh, June uh, practice intensive. Um, and we'll get some materials out about that pretty soon. See how that can be managed. Out walking, I, two, of, two of my neighbors both expressed interest in Apamada, so, uh, so I pointed them towards the um, Sunday morning orientation. So hopefully people are still doing that. <coughs> All right. Anything else? Last minute. So wonderful to see you all. And I really, really appreciate you coming together this way. It's uh, very helpful for me to see you. So it's encouraging and inspiring. And um, so please take care of yourselves. And uh, if we don't see you for tomorrow's zazen and walk, we'll see you soon. All right. Um, And we'll do service now.